Welcome to another episode of Practical Ethics. I'm David Perry. On June 24th, a five to four majority on the Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs v. Jackson that the U.S. Constitution does not grant women the right to abortion, thus overturning nearly 50 years of previous decisions beginning with Roe v. Wade in 1973. Fans of this podcast series who've heard my previous segment on the ethics of abortion can probably guess what my reaction to this Supreme Court decision has been. But I'm not remotely an expert in constitutional law, so it's my great privilege today to interview Jeffrey Stone, a distinguished service professor of law at the University of Chicago. Among his many books is one called Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from Americans' Origins to the 21st Century, which includes a detailed history of abortion laws in this country. Uh, Professor Stone's CV is uh, impressive, to say the least, and it would take me uh, way too long to list his many accomplishments. So I'm going to post a link to his CV online for uh, listeners to consult. So uh, welcome, Professor Stone, and thank you for agreeing to share your insights with us. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Okay, so uh, and a foundational things here. Before the Supreme Court's ruling last week, what were considered to be the basic constitutional rights of women regarding abortion, and what were the primary court decisions supporting those rights? Well, the most fundamental of the decisions was, of course, Roe versus Wade, decided in 1973. Um, Just to give a bit of context, I happened to be a law clerk to Supreme Court Justice William Brennan, that year. So I was there at the time Roe was decided. Um, It was a seven to two decision uh, and was not seen by the justices as highly controversial at the time. Um, Even the two dissenting justices uh, wrote relatively modest dissents. Uh, What what particularly led the justices, I think, in Roe to make the decision they did was two factors in particular that they came to understand. Uh, First was that until fairly recently relative to 1973, most people believed, uh, because they'd been told that, that abortion was illegal throughout all of Western history. And that the prohibition on abortion that existed in almost all the states at this point uh, was simply something that was built into Western culture. Uh, the justices learned that this was completely false, that um, abortion was uh, legal and deemed appropriate, particularly pre-quickening, um, that is before basically the midpoint of abortion, um, throughout all of Western history um, until the mid-19th century. Um, the Greeks and Romans um, were perfectly comfortable with abortion. Um, in the Middle Ages, it was legal. Uh, In England, it was legal. In the American colonies, it was legal. At the time the Constitution was adopted, it was legal in every state. Um, And it was not until the mid-19th century that uh, the United States and the states in particular um, decided to move against abortion. So that was one factor that led the justices to realize that the prohibition on abortion was not something that had existed from time immemorial, but it was a relatively recent um, uh, decision Uh, that took place. Second, um, people knew very little about the experience of women having abortions uh, prior to 
the late 1960s. That's because it was illegal and women were not willing or prepared to talk openly about their experiences um, because it was both a crime and it was would also endanger the, the, um, the doctors who had performed these services. And so almost no one except maybe the sister or girlfriend of a woman uh, would know anything about any of this. Um, but in the late 60s, the women's movement began to encourage women to speak out, and they began to do so. And the justices learned um, the reality of abortion at that time, which was that except for a relatively small number of wealthy women um, who were able to afford to pay doctors either in or outside the country to perform a, an abortion, the vast majority of women having abortions at that time, uh, some two million a year, um, were forced into the, the world of basically um, back alley abortions. Uh, some women performed the abortions by themselves uh, using things like uh, coat hangers and the like, which was highly unsafe and dangerous. Um, other women would try desperately to find someone who could perform an abortion for them. And since this was not well known, uh, they would ask friends who maybe knew somebody or they would ask elevator operators or cab drivers, and they'd say, like, I have a friend who's pregnant and needs an abortion. Do you happen to know someone who can uh, help her and offer them you know, some money to do that? And they would then find this person, call them up and say, um, I understand you perform abortions. I need them. Uh, can I um, rely on you? And they would say, uh, OK, it's going to cost X amount of money. Um, meet me on the northeast corner of X Street um, facing north at midnight on next Wednesday. And the woman would go there somewhat terrified. Someone would come up behind her, put a blindfold on her because they didn't want her to know who was performing the abortion. They would then put her in the back seat of a car and take her to some location, which she didn't know what it was. Um, it could be anything from a back alley to a hotel room or whatever. And then they would perform the abortion, uh, not being necessarily experts. Some of these were, were um, trained, but most of them were people like plumbers or cab drivers or whatever. Um, and then when they were done, they would, the blindfold still on, put the woman back in the car and drop her off on the street corner. This was, needless to say, a horrifying experience. And very few people in the country knew about this. Um, but as the justices came to know about it, they realized how outrageous and how offensive this was in, in the lives of women. Um, and this, I think, those two factors, I think, led them to understand that this was an outrageous uh, violation of the dignity and the rights of women. And so four of the five justices on the, on the court who were in the majority were appointed by Republican presidents. Um, and uh, that included three of the four appointed by Richard Nixon, who was opposed to abortion, including Warren Berger, William Powell, and Harry Blackman, who wrote the opinion. Um, and uh, at the time the opinion was written, it was largely... Uh, deemed by the public and by the press as a positive thing. Um, there were some critics at the time, mostly Catholics, um, but on the whole, it was it was seen by the public as a, a positive development. And the justices didn't see it as highly controversial at the time. Um, so Roe was the first uh, instance of this. Then over the next uh, 19 years, um, the makeup of the court, of course, changed significantly. And at that point, there were eight Republican-appointed justices on the court, 
and only one Democratic appointed justice, and that was Byron White, who was one of the dissenters in Roe, along with William Rehnquist. And in the Casey case that was decided in 1992, many people thought the court would overrule Roe. Uh, but in fact, uh, the court affirmed Roe. And all of the five justices in the majority affirming Roe were Republican appointed justices. Uh, these included um, uh, Stevens, Kennedy, uh, O'Connor, and Souter. Um, all of whom had been appointed, um, in, and in Blackman, of course, who had been on the court at the time of Roe, all of whom had been appointed uh, with the expectation that they would be anti um, the right of abortion. But they all concluded that the right of abortion was legitimate and appropriate. They modified some of the details of Roe v. Wade, uh, but they affirmed the decision. Um, and that's been the law ever since. Um, and interestingly, of the, of the justices who've served on the Supreme Court, apart from the current justices, um, nine of 11 uh, Republican appointed justices have um, voted in support of Roe v. Wade. Only Justice um, uh, Scalia and Justice Rehnquist of those 11 Republican appointed justices uh, disagreed with Roe until the current court uh, came into being. So as one can see, this is this has long been um, for 49 years now, a fundamental principle of American constitutional law that has been supported by both Democratic appointed and Republican appointed justices until the current moment. I think that's very helpful. So if I understand correctly, uh, since Roe and, and in a sense, even more so since the Casey decision, um, States and and the federal government were prohibited from uh, banning abortion prior to viability, and after viability they could prohibit it unless it was necessary for the health or life of the of the pregnant woman. Correct. Is that roughly that's, accurate? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so since last week's Supreme Court ruling, how are women's rights to abortion different and what sort of practical results of that ruling are we already seeing around the country? Well, the court um, directly and explicitly overruled Roe and Casey, um, and therefore the court held that women have no constitutional right to have an abortion, um, and therefore the decisions about whether women will be allowed to have abortions uh, returns to the states. Um, and the Constitution, the United States Constitution, is simply irrelevant with respect to those decisions. Um, what we've seen is a, a number of states um, had adopted laws in the past that said that if Roe was ever overruled, uh, the, their state law pro prohibiting abortion would automatically come back into effect. And that's been true in quite a few states already. Um, and a couple of other states have already moved to uh, prohibit abortion. Um, and uh, so what that means is in, in some states, um, like uh, New York, Illinois, California, um, Massachusetts, and, and so on, women will have the right to abortion under state law, not under the federal constitution. But in other states, they're now free to prohibit abortion and um a little over half of them will like to do so. Okay, so well, I'm grateful that you've been willing to talk about this decision just uh, like three days after it was released, although there was some 
a big hint of it uh, when Alito's uh, draft opinion was was leaked uh, several months ago. But uh, how would you assess the reasoning used in Alito's majority opinion? For example, regarding the history of abortion in American legislation and common law, um, which you've already uh, discussed in in some detail, and how Alito's interpretation of that affects his assessment of of, uh, prior decisions, Roe and Casey, and so on? Well, I think that um, he distorts the history um, by disregarding much of what I said earlier, and um, by focusing primarily on laws about abortion uh, beginning in the mid to late 19th century. Um, and as he points out, uh, a number of states, many states, had adopted restrictions on abortion um, and prohibited abortion um, by the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. And his view is that um, the framers of the 14th Amendment um, did not believe or think that that amendment guaranteed women a right to abortion. And that's, I think, probably a correct assumption. By that time, um, the, enough states had begun to prohibit abortion that that was not seen as a issue that was to be addressed in the Equal Protection Clause or in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, indeed, at that time, women were presumed to have no rights uh, under the 14th Amendment or the Due Process Clause. Um, and uh, so I think I think Alito's opinion uh, distorts the older history uh, and what what the law was like at the time the Constitution was adopted um, and also does not fairly describe what happened to lead states to begin restricting abortion. Um, the, the prohibitions on abortion began in the, in the early 19th century and were largely the result of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, this was a... Um, highly aggressive religious movement in the United States uh, that uh, was very uh, aggressive in terms of attacking what at that time were laws with respecting obscenity, which was not illegal at the time, um, abortion, which was not illegal at the time, um, and a range of other issues uh, that were not seen as appropriate for criminal punishment. Um, But this was basically the, the... a particular type of religious belief taking over, aggressively taking over the political process in many states. And among the things they did, in addition to outlawing obscenity for the first time um, and the like, is also beginning to prohibit abortion. And uh, Scalia looks at that development um, as determinative of what the 14th Amendment should mean. Um, And for that reason, he's correct in saying that at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted, um, it's probably true that the framers did not think about abortion uh, or about women for that matter as being protected by the 14th Amendment. Um, But it's not clear that that should be uh, the fundamental decision-making tool in deciding what the Constitution means over time. And particularly because uh, those laws were adopted almost exclusively because of uh, religious values that were uh, imposed upon the states, um, one has to be 
particularly suspect of whether that's a legitimate basis for government to be restricting the rights of people who don't share those religious views. Um, and, and Alito ignored all of that. Mm. Right. I think the dissenting justices uh, pointed out that uh, at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification, of course, that was several decades before women were allowed to vote, <laughs> which may probably had some implications for the the uh, the folks who uh, who were making the laws and so on. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly true. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the, the individuals who were framing the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause were thinking primarily about race and about Blacks mm. at that time. And it's pretty clear they weren't thinking about women. That was not the subject of the, the clause. But of course, the court in the year since then um, has recognized that the Equal Protection Clause protects women and that states cannot uh, discriminate against women consistent with the Constitution, even though that was not the belief or assumption of the people who adopted the 14th Amendment at the time it was adopted. And the court has taken that approach because they understand that, as in all circumstances, uh, the meaning of vague and open-ended constitutional provisions uh, evolve over time. As, as circumstances change, as society changes, as our understanding of values change, and that that's a perfectly appropriate basis for the court um, to look to what are the fundamental goals of a particular provision of the Constitution, and what should those goals be uh, understood to mean in an ever-changing society, not to be locked into what the framers of any particular provision might have meant at the moment that they um, decided it. And uh, that's where, at least in this case, Alito abandons that approach to constitutional interpretation entirely. Um, and the other thing I'd say that's very problematic about this decision is I have no, no doubt that not only was it the product of Republican appointments of these justices, which were ever more determined <clears throat> to avoid appointing justices like um, Berger and Blackman and Powell and um, uh, Stevens and, and Kennedy and O'Connor and Souter, um, who were true justices, who were willing to understand the fundamental values of the Constitution and the importance of precedent. And they appointed a bunch of justices who were uh, across a range of issues, including abortion, um, absolutely determined to turn the Constitution into what they wanted to be. And we're seeing this increasingly already uh, with gun rights and um, today with the right of, of a school teacher, a football coach to, to prey on, on school property after football games. Um, and uh, these justices are very much acting out of their own personal religious beliefs. Um, in addition to their very conservative and rigid conservative views. And that's just deeply troubling because that's not what the Supreme Court's supposed to be. Um, in the past, justices on both sides, both Democrat and Republican appointed justices, have um, agreed with one another on a broad range of controversial issues because they were trying to do their job as justices uh, and not to simply impose their own political and personal and religious views on the nation. Uh, that's not what the makeup of the current court is inclined to do. And that's deeply troubling. Okay, so um, I'm guessing if, if you're finding the, um, the reasoning that Alito and the, uh, the majority used to overrule Roe and, and Casey and so on, uh, that, well, uh, 
I suppose it's an open question. Do you think nonetheless that there are solid constitutional grounds for restoring the right to abortion, um, uh, maybe drawing on some points that were made in the dissenting opinion or not? Just it could be your own views on this. Well, um, first of all, we'd have to have a very different court than the current court. And the majority of the justices in the majority in this case uh, likely to be around for quite a while. Yep. Um, and therefore, I don't think there's any realistic possibility that the Supreme Court will um, restore a woman's right to abortion any time in the foreseeable future. Um, and even when some of these justices step down, uh, they're likely to step down when the Republicans control the Senate um, and when there's a Republican president and therefore continue to manipulate the appointment process uh, so as to ensure that justices with their points of view uh, are the ones who get appointed. Uh, this has been happening much more often in recent years and than it did in the past. Um, and that means that even as you look forward, it's not particularly likely that we'll see a court with a uh, what I would regard as a, a traditionally uh, balanced view of how to think about the meaning of the Constitution. The other thing about Alito's opinion that I think was very um, unfortunate and inappropriate, and which uh, Justice Breyer, in his dissenting opinion, uh, correctly attacks, was the appropriateness of overruling a prior Supreme Court decision. The court has never in its history overruled a prior decision that protected the rights of individuals. Um, they've never gone backwards in that type of situation. Um, this is the first time the court has ever done that. And that in itself is quite extraordinary. Um, but second, there was no real legitimate justification, frankly, for overruling Roe. Um, uh, Alito attacks quite viciously the reasoning of the court in Roe. Um, and much of that is distorted, much of his dis criticism is distorted. Um, and the court has a long tradition of giving deference to prior decisions. It does overrule prior decisions sometimes. Brown v. Board of Education is a good example and so on. Um, but it does it only in circumstances where it's expanding individual rights, not reducing them. And when there's a, ch a change has taken place in society over time, that leads us to understand that what the justices thought when they decided that case no longer holds true. But in fact, nothing has changed since Roe that would lead Roe to be any less correct today than it was when it was decided. It's just that we have a group of justices at the moment who were appointed for the purpose of doing this. Okay, well, let's see, since uh, the court has now thrown the issue to the, uh, well, I guess the federal and state uh, legislators, if you were if you were given the opportunity to advise the president and congressional leaders now, uh, what would you recommend that they do? Is there some kind of a federal law that could be enacted that would uh, would help to uh, restore uh, some abortion rights to women? Well, the first problem, of course, is the filibuster. Yeah. So even if you could get a majority in both the House and the Senate, um, is there's no way it would pass in the Senate, given the existence of the filibuster. So the question again would be, is it appropriate to get rid of the filibuster? Um, and that's a very complicated question because at any given moment in time, the filibuster may disadvantage um, certain 
positions, but in other times it advantages those positions. And uh, it's not obvious that the filibuster is necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, indeed, it often has the effect of protecting minorities. Um, uh, so I, I think getting rid of the filibuster with respect to this issue would be great, but I don't think that getting rid of the filibuster in general is obviously a, a correct decision. It's complicated. Um, but even if they did that, the question is what laws could they enact? Um, they could enact, I believe, constitutionally, um, federal laws that help fund abortions um, for individuals, uh, even in states that hold it to be illegal, if, they, if the funding is used only in states where it's legal. Um, and, and they could, um, uh, basically, I think what they could do is to try to make it easier for women who are either in states where it's illegal or too poor to deal with that situation, um, to enable them to get to a state where they can have a legal abortion. Um, I don't think they can effectively overrule this decision in any way. And even if, despite the filibuster, they were able to enact a law that said women have a, have a legal right, not a constitutional, a legal right to have an abortion, I'm pretty sure the Supreme Court would hold that unconstitutional. Hmm. Interesting. What, what sort of grounds do you think they would cite to overrule a law like that? They would say Congress has no authority to pass it. Congress would say, you know, Congress has to have a constitutional justification for enacting laws. And they would say, uh, not only is there no constitutional justification for such a law, but indeed it is inconsistent with the meaning of the 14th Amendment as we have interpreted it. I see. So I that's one point I missed in reading uh, Alito's decision. I did not realize that it that he was saying it's it's really just up to the individual states that the federal government doesn't or the Congress and the president were acting together don't have a say in this anymore. Well, he didn't address that question explicitly because there's no no realistic scenario in which that would happen in any time soon. But. Uh, the, the argument would be that states have the power under their own state constitutions to allow or to prohibit abortion after this case. <clears throat> so the, the federal government, though, has to have a constitutional uh, power that's given them in the Constitution to pass laws that um, affect the states. Um, they can't just do whatever they want, um, the federal government. And what the, the, the obvious right that the Congress would say it was protecting here is the equal protection or due process rights of women. Um, and the court would say, no, they don't have those rights and you can't protect them because there is no such right. It would be as wow. if Congress enacted a law that said, um, uh, you know, uh, women can't serve on juries. And that would clearly be unconstitutional because Congress doesn't have the authority to make that decision. And so this court, I think, would say Congress does not have the authority to say that states have to allow abortion. Hmm. Wow, that's uh, that's really sobering to me. Um, OK, so uh, we may be running up against a time limit here, but I want to give you an opportunity to um, to mention any other uh, thoughts that uh, we haven't had a chance to explore yet. Well, to me, the most important thoughts about this are that it's, in my view, an illegitimate decision. It is not well-founded, 
in legal practice or legal theory. Uh, it distorts in important ways the history. Um, and it disregards the principle of precedent, which is central to the way the judiciary behaves. We don't want courts to overrule prior decisions just because any particular court disagrees with the prior court. That would create chaos in, in the law. Um, and I think Alito's opinion is completely on principle in those respects. Um, and the other thing he does, which I think is un unprecedented, is even when the court does overrule a prior decision, it never attacks the justices who wrote or joined the prior decision. What the court will typically say is that times have changed. And we can say that that earlier decision no longer functions the way the original justices expected it to. Um, and therefore, it's appropriate to overrule the decision. Um, and in this case, he basically attacks uh, Justice Blackman and the other justices in the majority um, for writing what he regards as a completely unprincipled uh, and unwarranted opinion. And he attacks them pretty viciously. And that's I've never seen that, where a court that overrules a prior decision uh, attacks the justices who decided the prior case as being terrible people and stupid justices. When Brown v. Board of Education overruled Plessy v. Ferguson, for example, um, the justices didn't say that the, the members of the court at the time of Plessy were racist and stupid and, and unprincipled. They just said our understandings have changed over time about the harm that's being done by racial segregation. Um, and we now understand how damaging that is um, to uh, to blacks, even though at the time of Plessy, uh, the court may not have understood that. Um, that's totally different from the reasoning of um, Alito in this case. Uh, nothing has changed since Roe was decided in terms of the effects of a right to abortion. Um, indeed, abortion is less common today because of improvement in contraception. Um, and there's no sense in which it does not benefit women uh, who are pregnant and don't want to be any more or less than it did at the time of Roe. So there's no principled argument that anything has changed since then, except to make up the Supreme Court. Well, uh, I guess one final question is uh, whether we can look forward to reading um, uh, a lengthy article of yours in the not too distant future evaluating the decision. Um, you might be. I'm in the middle of writing a couple of uh, other books, but one of them is on abortion. Um, and, and consists of a series of essays by very distinguished scholars, both legal, philosophical, historical scholars about mm -hmm. abortion. Um, and um, uh, that will come out hopefully in the next um, uh, in the next year. Um, and that's what I'm focusing on right now is putting that together. Um, but at some point, I may write something myself about the issue. Yeah. Well, as a constitutional law professor, I imagine this court is going to keep you very busy. Unfortunately so, yes. Yes, for, for the bad reasons, yeah. Okay, so on that note, uh, I want to thank you very much. This has been Professor Jeffrey Stone of the University of Chicago Law School. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us regarding an immensely significant Supreme Court decision. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, David. As a postscript to our interview, I want to leave you with some passages from the dissenting opinion written by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan.
For half a century, the dissenters write, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey have protected the liberty and equality of women. Roe held and Casey reaffirmed that the Constitution safeguards a woman's right to decide for herself whether to bear a child. Roe held and Casey reaffirmed that in the first stages of pregnancy, the government could not make that choice for women. The government could not control a woman's body or the course of a woman's life. It could not determine what the woman's future would be. Respecting a woman as an autonomous being and granting her full equality meant that meant giving her substantial choice over this most personal and most consequential of all life decisions. Roe and Casey well understood the difficulty and divisiveness of the abortion issue. The court knew that Americans hold profoundly different views about the morality of terminating a pregnancy even in its earliest stage. And the court recognized that the state has legitimate interests from the onset of the pregnancy in protecting the life of the fetus that may become a child. So the court struck a balance, as it often does when values and goals compete. It held that the state could prohibit abortions after fetal viability, so long as the ban contained exceptions to safeguard a woman's life or health. It held that even before viability, the state could regulate the abortion procedure in multiple and meaningful ways. But until the viability line was crossed, the court held a state could not impose a substantial obstacle on a woman's right to elect the procedure as she, not the government, thought proper in light of all the circumstances and complexities of her own life. Today, the court discards that balance. It says that from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. A state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term, even at the steepest personal and familiar costs. An abortion restriction the majority holds is permissible whenever rational, the lowest level of scrutiny known to the law. And because, as the court has often stated, protecting fetal life is rational, states will feel free to enact all manner of restrictions. The Mississippi law at issue here bars abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Under the majority's ruling, though, another state's law could do so after 10 weeks, or 5, or 3, or 1, or again from the moment of fertilization. States have already passed such laws in anticipation of today's ruling. More will follow. Some states have enacted laws extending to all forms of abortion procedure, including taking medication in one's own home. They have passed laws without any exceptions for when the woman is the victim of rape or incest. Under those laws, a woman will have to bear her rapist's child or a young girl her father's, no matter if doing so will destroy her life. States may even argue that a prohibition on abortion need make no provision for protecting a woman from risk of death or physical harm. Across a vast array of circumstances, a state will be able to impose its moral choice on a woman and coerce her to give birth. Enforcement of all these draconian restrictions will also be left largely to the state's devices. A state can, of course, impose criminal penalties on abortion providers, including lengthy prison sentences. But some states will not stop there. Perhaps in the wake of today's decision, a state law will criminalize the woman's conduct too, incarcerating or fining her for daring to seek or obtain an abortion. And as Texas has recently shown, 
A state can turn neighbor against neighbor, enlisting fellow citizens in the effort to root out anyone who tries to get an abortion or to assist another in doing so. The majority tries to hide the geographically expansive effects of its holding. Today's decision, the majority says, permits each state to address abortion as it pleases. That is cold comfort, of course, for the poor woman who cannot get the money to fly to a distant state for a procedure. Above all others, women lacking financial resources will suffer from, days de- from today's decision. In any event, interstate restrictions will also soon be in the offing. After this decision, some states may block women from traveling out of state to obtain abortions or even from receiving abortion medications from out of state. Some may criminalize efforts, including the provision of information or funding to help women gain access to other states' abortion services. Most threatening of all, no language in today's decision stops the federal government from prohibiting abortions nationwide, once again from the moment of conception, uh, without exceptions for rape or incest. Unquote. This has been an episode of the Practical Ethics Podcast. I'm David Perry. Thanks for listening.